If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this episode on Thursday, March 7th, 2019. And I have to warn you right up front, folks, it's going to be another speedy show, because my co-host, once again, as soon as we finish recording today's podcast, has to drive like a madman down the five and rush hour traffic all the way from Toluca Lake to Anaheim, because what is it you're doing again at Disneyland tonight? I'm going to the throwback 90s night at Disneyland. Huh? So, yeah, I've got a another an, another Disneyland trip this week. But I just wanted to update everyone on uh, my ranking in Minnie's Moonlit. Oh, Madness. yeah, that's right. The After Hours Trivia Contest for not just Disney cast members, but people all over the company, right? Yeah, I think there were about 400 teams. So you're looking at close to... 1400 people and we ranked are you ready for this yep 13th <laughs> lucky 13 which is pretty pretty that good is right great. i mean given yeah. that you were probably actually competing from a team with against a team from the, the actual disney archive right exactly that's extraordinary <laughs> holy cow congrats yeah. yeah and again toughest question do we ask this last time the toughest question was the weight of the fish bag in uh, Pacific Wharf. You know, there's like that giant kind of ropey bag full of fish. That was really hard, as well as the collegiate pendant that's in the fake barber shop on Main Street, right? We did talk about this. Oh, okay. So, but again, 13th. Yeah. That, that's yeah. killer. That's killer. <laughs> okay, and interesting yeah, again. Yeah. Now you're going to a 90s Disney uh, event celebrating the 90s, because on the second half yeah. of today's show... We're going to be featuring audio from an interview that you recently did, like recently, like Monday of this week recently, with yes. the director of Mary Poppins Returns, Rob Marshall. And over the course of that interview, you scored several, I mean, really for real scoops here. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Second half of the show, folks. All right, now to the news. And the big news today is the Disney shareholders meeting held in St. Louis. So now we know when... Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is opening up and... Well, part of it, Well, part of it. There part we it. go. And that we also need reservations for the first three-plus weeks that it's open in Anaheim, which gives me reservations about the whole Star Wars Galaxy's Edge project, but I'm not going to be <laughs> going to be a jerk here about this. I'm going to be a jerk about the Disney Plus news. Iger supposedly said from the stage that... The entire Disney vault is going to be available to be played through Disney Plus, which, again, is this subscription streaming service. So did that make you think about the film that, what do they say about Voldemort? They get, <laughs> yeah, the film we dare not speak its name. There we yeah. go. Um, it did make me think about that, among other things. But yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, would Song of the South make an appearance? I, I cannot imagine that it would, <sighs> but... You can't say something like that. And I mean, I'm face it. Yes, there are whole chunks of the Disney vault, whether it's the the early black and white shorts with Mickey from, you know, the early 30s where he appears in blackface. I wonder, I mean, are we talking about like the cigarette scenes that got cut out of 
uh, Paco Spill from Make My Music or, or Melody Time. Right. I mean, when you say the whole vault, I'm suddenly intrigued. What are you looking forward to seeing? I was wondering if they were going to have things like, you know, the, like the opening of Epcot celebration with Danny Kay, things like that. Like, how deep is this vault going? Mm -hmm. And how are they amassing this? And, and, and also, like, subsidiaries like Touchstone and, and Miramax and Hollywood, are those going to be represented? I have a lot of questions about Disney Plus, but yeah, it would be fascinating if all 56, 57 Disney animated features are there along with things like Song of the South. You know the one I really want to see if it shows up? You ever heard of Scandalous John? No. Oh, okay. This is from 1971. This stars Brian Keith is basically sort of Don Quixote, but set in modern day. It's about a rancher who's down to like just two or three cattle, long, longhorn cattle. His land is being taken by eminent domain because they want to build a dam so they can make the desert bloom. And so he's going to drive his cattle to market and sell them and save the ranch. And it all goes horribly wrong. I mean, Brian Keith actually dies at the end of this movie. A spoiler. And, and in fact, the reason you'll love this, it's John Ritter that kills him. Wow. John Ritter's like five in this movie. I mean, it, it, you know, <laughs> all right, maybe he's 20. You've never seen him younger. But, but again, he, he's the guy who ends up killing scandalous John. But it's coming to market at the exact same time that Walt Disney World is opening. So Walt Disney World is a place that took a swamp and flattened it and put a theme park in. So Disney is frantically trying to get the Magic Kingdom open. And they've been sort of paying attention to Scandalous John. And then they realize, wow, this is coming to the market the exact time we open Walt Disney World. And it's all about giant evil corporations destroying the beauty of nature. It was this kind of token release, and then it went back into the vault. <laughs> it's also worth seeing for, honestly, the worst special effects sequence in the history of the Disney <laughs> company. Because it actually ends aboard a train. And I think John Ritter accidentally kills Scandalous John on the train. But there's also a train wreck that clearly is being done with HO scale trains. You know. <laughs> this sounds like it could be a perfect double feature with the Lone there Ranger. There we go. I'm oh, no. Come on. I want to. <laughs> I love the Lone I Ranger. I love the Lone Ranger too, but it. yeah, well, maybe you're right. Well, what do you think this is? Is this going to have an effect on the treasures from the Disney oh. Vault night on, on TMC as well? I saw that there's going to be another one on Monday, March 25th with a mixture of live action and, and, animated stuff but i wonder i wonder what that's gonna do i have the uneasy feeling that that's gonna go away and i do hope that disney is smart enough to make use of leonard malton to do something like this to provide context for films like scandalous john right yeah because again i always love leonard's work but you also have to wonder what else is going to show up at disney plus are they, are they going to bring in out in any outside productions is this strictly Disney-produced stuff, Pixar, Lucasfilm, you know, the, the works, because I know of one show that, that's suddenly looking for distribution. I mean, have you been following this whole Vox Machina thing? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I think you've been more in-depth following it, but it's it's an amazing story. It really is. This is a, a Dungeons & Dragons-based entertainment. Very popular online. In fact, it has this whole fan base of folks that call themselves Critters, 
the Critical Role team. That's what I should be saying here. They decided, let's do an animated version, and that they, they set up a 42-day-long Kickstarter, and their goal was to get $750,000, which would then allow them to produce this one special, this Critical Role special. And the thing is, they raised the original $750,000 in less than an hour, and now jump ahead, what, we're four days into the campaign, and with four, over 42,000 backers? I think earlier today, they just rolled past $6 million. Wow. And that beats the previous Kickstarter record, which was uh, to revive Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in 2015. But uh, now, you know, it's gone from one 22-minute uh, long special to... It's either now four 22-minute long episodes or six. They're now looking for distribution. They're now looking for a home. And what this reminds me of is, is the success that the McElroys, uh, they also do an amazing Dungeons & Dragons, or did uh, an amazing Dungeons & Dragons-based show called Adventure Zone that uh, my daughter Alice was nice enough to introduce me to, and a wonderfully entertaining show, which also has had this bizarre life beyond... The podcast, they did a graphic novel last year of the first campaign for the Adventure Zone, uh, Here Be Here There Be Gerblins, and it wound up on the New York Times bestseller list in June. Uh, you know, it was the top of their paperback trade fiction section and was third overall on the list. What I love about this is that this is stuff that is outside of the corporate creation system, you know, the, where the DreamWorks and the Disneys and those folks play and the fact that this sort of crowdfunded stuff that will have its own unique voice and its own unique style and in fact they've reached out to titmouse titmouse is going to be animating this thing oh wow yeah and they do all that wonderful work for disney so more power to them and more power to the the critical role folks are really looking forward to this project and also want to remind all you Adventure Zone fans out there that the second graphic novel in the series, The Murder on the Rockport Limited, is arriving in stores on July 18th. And I'm just putting it out there. If the critical role folks can get an animated special, I would love to see an ad animated version of Magnus Burnside, Burl High Church, and Taco. So somebody make that happen. Yeah, can we get a Kickstarter going for this podcast? Um, <laughs> Nova needs better dog toys, all right? She does. She does. <laughs> this dog has had a hard life, folks. <laughs> anyway, we uh, touched on DreamWorks just a second ago. I guess let's circle around to uh, How to Turn Your Dragon Hidden World. Just, what, finished weekend two at the box office uh, here stateside. Stayed at number one. Stayed at number one, 30 million in ticket sales. 45% fall off on opening weekend, which again, these days is considered acceptable, right? Yes, it is. They were worried about it being over 50, yeah. but I think they were very happy that it was yeah. 40. So 98 million to date probably will slip over the $100 million barrier fairly shortly. A worldwide ticket sales so far, $375 million, better than the original Dragon, which had a worldwide gross of $351 million. Still has a ways to go to beat the second installment, which... Total back in 2014 was 621 million. I want to say, I was talking with folks at Universal, especially Universal Creative, about how well Hidden World is doing in China over there. All by itself, it's made 115 million dollars at the box office. And the reason I was kind of touching base with with them is 
Do you know what Universal Studios Beijing, the park that's supposed to be opening over there, I want to say 2020, 2021? No, I haven't heard anything about it. When they opened uh, Universal uh, Studios Singapore, they had some DreamWorks-inspired rides. In fact, they actually built an entire far, far away land at that park. And they've since added a, a Puss in Boots coaster, and there's a Madagascar section with a water ride. And so those attractions were going to be cloned for Beijing. But now, because Dragons has done so well at the Chinese box office, there's some discussion about, hey, should we maybe this be the place to debut our first ever How to Train Your Dragon attraction? We were talking about the Dragons TV show, and I thought it was so funny because I saw it on last mm. night, and that show still has T.J. Miller oh. as the character, whereas in the third movie, he's booted, and and there's a sound-alike. Yeah. It's not even another, another actor. It's just a, it's a sound-alike. Yeah. But it's really interesting that he's still on the show, but not in the movie. Not to go after Mr. Glassiter again, but T.J. actually has kind of kept his head down. He's... He has, yeah. He seems to be out doing his penance. It, it'll be interesting to see if at some point he gets to come back. And and I guess we have to talk about what's going on with Lego Movie 2, the second part. Yeah. You liked this movie, right? Oh, I, I liked it a yeah. lot. Yeah, I, I'm shocked that it's doing uh, so poorly. It's It looks like it's going to struggle to meet the the to half of the total of the first movie mm. which is just a crazy drop off yeah. and how would you like to be the folks at Legoland Florida who on the 26th of this excuse me 27th of this month are opening up the their Lego Movie World land at their Florida park and you want to talk about nasty one two punch here okay so you're opening this brand new land at the time when the second film is well, not tanking, but underperforming at the box office. And then at the exact same time, uh, SeaWorld is opening its brand new Sesame Street thing. So not only are, are you having to deal with difficult questions about the second Lego movie, but only half the reporters are showing up to ask these awkward questions because you know, the other half are down the street at Sesame Street. By the way, the last time this happened, Drew, were, were you down... In Orlando for the opening of Avatar, the World of Pandora? No, I was down in Florida for the opening of Volcano Bay. Same thing. Exact same day. And I think you and I both were at Volcano Bay that day. Yep. When it was mostly finished? Yeah, mostly yeah. finished. I mean, I still remember climbing stairs for the aqua coaster as they were nailing the steps into place. It, it was an interesting day, so... It was. It was fun. Yeah. Well, speaking of fun things, you just, again, you just got to do a very cool thing. You were at the the Mary Poppins Returns Media Day, and this was for Walt Disney Home Home Entertainment, right? Yes, it was. Uh, there was a great press conference with Rob Marshall. He actually brought out uh, Angela Lansbury and uh, remembered her name from Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which I could not. If that was a trivia question on Minnie's Moonlit Madness, I would have uh, flunked it. So, I mean, he That is one is front of brain for me. I mean, I have no math, no science, but who doesn't <laughs> know Eglantine Price? All right? Eglantine. Eglantine, Eglantine yes, Price. Yes. You know, a substitutionary locomotion. I mean, come on, Drew. Keep up. Yeah, I know. I like Bad Knobs and Broomsticks, but I just have not seen it a lot. It wasn't... I don't think it was as readily available 
as Mary Poppins uh, when I grew up. So, well, you know, it, uh, blame the vault, Jim. Blame the vault. We'll circle back to the vault in a moment. But but anyway, <laughs> speaking of, of getting back, folks, we're, we're going to step away for a commercial. And when we come back, wait to hear what Drew got out of Rob Marshall. And we're back. So this was the junket for Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, the digital version of this Walt Disney Pictures release is available today, folks. Uh, if, on the other hand, you're waiting for the Blu-ray the or the DVD, that doesn't hit store shelves till the 19th. So right off the bat, Drew, you have compromising intel on Rob Marshall, some photographs he doesn't want released. How did you get him to answer these questions? You know, I think Rob Marshall and I, we were just vibing. Okay. Uh, you heard the audio, you know, I think we're on the same level of, of nerdiness. Mm. Although I, I asked him a question about uh, unionization <laughs> being a part of the movie. And he was like, you know, I never even thought about that. So maybe I've thought about Mary Poppins Returns more more than Rob Marshall at this point. But yeah, I think we just got along really, really well. And I think you can hear it in the in the audio. Well, I love talking to you about the research you did for this movie. So I want to know, did you look at the, the script they were working on in the 80s for Mary Poppins Comes Back? No, but I heard okay. about it. Okay. But I heard about it. I heard there had been one, but never had seen it. and even know it was, it was possible to look at it. Right. But it's, um, I will say, it was interesting it, that it took 54 years. So mm -hmm. it made sense that they would have tried at some point. At some, right. But we know P.L. Travers was famously incredibly protective of that material so mm -hmm. that's what that was i think that's what that was all about right yeah uh was there anything you found in your research that you wish you had included not necessarily the deleted scene or anything but any kind of aspect or ephemera that you had come across and said oh i wish i could have found a place for it in this movie from the books you mean themselves yeah or, or anything that you came across in the archives or any any of that right stuff. well you know what the in the books we did make a i mean i went through and really every book to see what I thought were possible musical adventures. That's really mm -hmm. what I was looking for. What what would be set pieces that could work? And so we picked we chose to use the ones that we thought were the most, you know, were, were the were the strongest. But there were others. There were other interesting ones along the way. I'm trying to remember now what they might have been. Did you sort of put those in a bin and say if we do another one. We can sort of never thought about okay. a number one. Okay. Never, okay. Thought, never thought in those terms. Just thought, well, here are the ones that could possibly work. I remember making a, a, a long list of different ones, and I mean, we really used sort of the strongest mm -hmm. of them all. So there's nothing that actually. I mean, I'm just like going through my head, trying to remember what they were, but they, they've kind of receded now in the background. <laughs> but you know, there is a lot of material. Yeah. Um, although a lot of it is re repetitious. Right. You know, I mean. You know, you even see in our film clearly that we there's re repeated things because that's how the books live. Right. I mean, you know, you don't have Uncle Albert, but you have Topsy Turvy. You right. Know what I mean, right. And there's it. it, it she that's echoes, how that's that, echoes. Yeah. <laughs> that's how that's how, that's how she wrote. Right. Yeah. One thing I was really curious about, and I thought was very interesting from a Disney history standpoint, is yes. that you have a character who's fighting for unionization. Yes. And we know that unions were a very yes. touchy subject yes. here and almost brought down the studio. Yes. You're I was right. wondering if there was any sort of like guardrails that you came across or wow, anything. Oh, God, I never made that connection. Yeah. Because I don't think of that in those terms. But yes, you're absolutely right uh, that that was part of this. That was a big deal. Yeah. Um, well, you know, listen, I love that, that where it really came from, this whole idea that Jane would be a union organizer, was it came from 
being passed down the sense of rights for, for workers, rights for women's votes. Mm-hmm. It really came from her, the mother. Right. Yeah. And, and the suffragette movement. Right. So that was the connection. Okay. Yeah. All right. I just, you know, as a nerd, I thought, no, I, oh, love this that, is a very... I love that you're so deeply connected to all that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I wanted to do some, some kind of lightning round stuff with sure. you. Uh, favorite costume in this movie? I have to say Emily's tiered dress in the animation sequence. Okay. That, that because, you know, it is a perfect example of the painting that Sandy Powell was able to accomplish that was so extraordinary. When you look at it, it looks like a series, it looks like a tiered dress, and it's not. It's one flat piece of fabric that's oh, painted wow. as a tier. So that's like a perfect example. And, it, and, and also it represents, you know, uh, moving into that live action animation sequence, which was, you know, one of the greatest experiences of my life. Well, I was going to ask what, what your favorite musical sequence was. Mm-hmm. And... No question. Well, it's a tie oh, okay. for me because it, it, it's, it's, it covers not the book because we, it, it was a chance to do this extraordinary thing and very complicated to create a live action animation dance which had to be, you know, carefully orchestrated. John DeLuke and I choreographed every inch of it because of the um, all of the requirements of the hand-drawn animation. Right. So, and also it was both Lynn and Emily. Mm-hmm. It was the first thing we shot because we had to get we had to turn it over to animators right away. It was most complicated because it involved, you know, working with penguins and da- you know and animal dancers and and animation right so that was that was thrilling and exciting to work on and also to have emily dance you know uh, i didn't know she could dance as well as she did and she's extraordinary and and lynn too so that was really fun that was a that was joyous and then i have to say because i come from dance and i'm a male dancer obviously when i was sort of a young athletic male dancer and so doing triple life fantastic Mm -hmm. and creating an eight minute long you know, production number of that scale was thrilling. Well, I was going to ask you, you, I don't know if it's official yet, but there's been talk, obviously, that you're going to do another big project yes. for Disney. Is Has this experience sort of prepared you in some ways for Little Mermaid, or is that going to be a whole other <laughs> technical well, can I, of worms? I will say, I was just thinking about this the other day, that every movie I've done has been an enormous challenge. I've never sort of done the easy film, you know, the two people in a room talking yeah. film. This next one, The Little Mermaid, is massively challenging because of how to create a world underwater. You know, half of the movie is underwater. And to create a world that's, that actually comes to life in a way that's actor-friendly when you're shooting it and bringing that world to life. I mean, I do love creating worlds. That's something I've always loved to do no matter what world I'm diving into. So that's thrilling. But... This one is um, incredibly challenging. I think all the films I've done help me to the next film. Right. I mean, I always feel like when I start, I'm literally like it's my first film. I always <laughs> feel like, wait, how do you do this again? Because it, each one is has its own challenges. But this one, um, we're already starting to prep now because it's complicated. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said you love practical things and I having do. things for actors to interact with. There, I too. I, there will not be a singing crab on set. So is that? <laughs> but you know, but you know what? There will be. Oh, okay. And I'll tell you why. Because I think uh, what I know that I need to be—I need actors to work with actors. I just can't work with just voices or just the script supervisor standing there reading the lines. Yeah, yeah. So I, I probably will in, involve some puppetry. Okay. To help with that, to help the actor, it's all about making it come alive for the actor, so they can bring 
the performance to life. So I will be very careful to make sure that it's not done in a void. Right. That people will feel like they can interact with something, some, you know, and I probably have actors on the set too doing that with them. Well, do you have a different, you've obviously sort of taken a, a Disney property from this kind of golden era and now the kind of Disney renaissance you're approaching yeah, now. Yeah. Is there, is there a different, yeah, is there a different sort of approach that you sort of go? Uh, well, here's what it is for me. Uh, Mary Poppins hit me in a very deep way because of the age I was so young. Right. So, but I know that the people that were that age when Mermaid, Little Mermaid came out, it means that much to them. Right. You know, I certainly appreciated it so much. It was the renaissance, as you said so beautifully, of the beginning of ushering in a, uh, animated musicals and musicals in a way. Musicals, even on film in any shape or form, had sort of gone away. And that was the beginning in 1989. And so that. That, you know, I, I do feel, you know, carrying the mantle of that is important. It's a big, it's a very important film to a lot of people. And you're getting to continue your relationship with Lin-Manuel. What is your sort of collaborative process like? Well, he is the greatest collaborator, I mean, and human being around. <laughs> he, he's such an authentic person. I always think of that word when I think of him. He's just such a true person. He doesn't, there's, there's you know... One of the reasons I wanted him to play Jack in this film, as an example, is because he's he's not jaded in any way. You know, there's such an enthusiasm behind everything he does, and he really embodies that character of Jack in that he brings his childlike sensibilities. You know, they come; they're just there. He doesn't have to even work to get them there. He's just who he is. So, I will work with him anytime, anywhere, and he knows that. And so, getting to work with him on the other side of the table. As a lyricist, as he'll be working with Alan Menken on this new material, is exciting. Yeah. It's really exciting. My last question is, as I know you come from Broadway, and, and that is a huge part of your world. Did you look at the fairly recent Mary Poppins stage I production? I in London. Okay. But I didn't return to it again. Because okay. I just thought, well, that... First of all, we're doing something completely else. We're, you know, we're not yes. doing a remake, so we're doing something else. So that didn't help inform anything for me. And I just remember seeing it in London and thought, wow, that's exciting. They've done, you know, they've, they've reimagined it and so forth and, and, and created it for stage, but did not work from it because we, I, I really worked for, I mean, knowing, knowing that we were a film, yeah. it was really about being the sequel to the film. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. So it's a pleasure you. to talk to you. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your thank day. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you too. At these sorts of junkets, especially the ones for home entertainment releases, the PR people at the studio only want the interview subjects to talk about what's about to hit store shelves. But you got Marshall to talk about his very next project at Disney, which hasn't even been officially announced at this point. Yeah, when I when I started asking him questions about his live action remake of The Little Mermaid, I looked around the room, uh, made sure no one was going to yell at me, and then turned my back uh, to the publicist and back towards Rob Marshall because, you know what, out of sight, out of mind, you know, I just had to ask the question. But at some point during this interview, somebody called me on my phone. It was a telemarketer, and it cut out a little bit, but Rob said this great thing about saying that he already had mermaid experience because he had mermaids on Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Oh my god, you're right. Now, Ariel's... <laughs> Very different kind of mermaid. Ariel's not going to have or... teeth and eat people, right? Right. <laughs> Disney hasn't officially gone on record yet that, that Rob has been signed to direct the live-action mermaid, right? Yeah, there's been no press release or anything. Okay, there's been stuff in the trades there about has, this yes. is in development. and But 
to hear him talk to you, I mean, this thing is in active development. In fact, what I, what I absolutely love about this interview is you got him to talk about how they're going to handle Sebastian the Crab in the live-action mermaid. So, by the way, when did you first get to see the animated mermaid? I remember being taken to see The Little Mermaid at the Galaxy Theater in San Antonio, Texas by none other than Academy Award winning actor Tommy Lee Jones because I was best friends with his son. And yeah, he took us to see The Little Mermaid. Um, and I vividly remember that uh, still in my mind. You, you got taken to the movies by Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> yes, Tommy Lee brought us there and I think he enjoyed it too. He was a... He was kind of a big kid at heart, even though he has a very, let's say, not nasty, but he likes to make interviewers cry. Uh, so, you know, it, it was, he's a, he's a sweetheart. He, and he took us to see Little Mermaid. So that's when I, I remember that very vividly. Holy yes. cow. I can't yeah. believe I'm, I'm hearing this story for the first time. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I, uh, back to this killer interview. To, to give Marshall credit. It was also smart of him to tie his answer back, you know, given the publicist sitting in the room, you know, to, to Mary yeah. Poppins Returns. Well, I wanted to know what he thought about, you know, he took a beloved sort of really classic Disney movie, and this is a newer kind of classic. Rob isn't just working with Alan Menken on this thing. And, and Menken, of course, is, you know, the guy who wrote the Oscar-winning songs and score to this 1989 Walt Disney Pictures release. But he's brought in Hamilton himself, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's working with Menken on uh, brand new numbers to sort of supplement the score of, of the live-action mermaid, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is another confirmation that has not been publicly released yet but yeah Lynn manuel is working with alan minkin which is just so cool given that miranda played jack the lamplighter mary poppins return rob has already already has a high opinion of the guy well i have i have to ask you a question do you think by listening to this that maybe mm -hmm. he's already filmed something well my theory after hearing him talk is that maybe he's shot some test footage much like they showed for the Lion King at the last D23 oh. that will be unveiled at this summer's D23 because the level of detail and specificity he talked about for a movie that has yet to enter production oh. has me thinking. Yeah, and remember, there is, in fact, precedent for this. And I'm not just talking about the the Lion King thing that Favreau showed us at, at the uh, 2017 D23 Expo. Do you remember when they showed... They called it the shoebox version of Coco. Oh, I love that. I love that. I wish that was somewhere. Oh, no. Put that on Disney no, Plus, that's, please. That's Jeez. it exactly. I mean, it, that was when it was a full-blown musical. And they literally travel through the entire world of Coco. And only what? In the last beat of the, the, the song, they revealed that there's this live little boy in this world, and they, they do that, that kind of Monsters, Inc. reaction, like, oh, boy, ooh. Yeah. Oh, I want to see that again, but yeah, oh. Yeah, you know that at the time, I think it still is, it was the longest shot, single shot in Pixar history, oh. that shoebox thing. Oh, yeah. come on, guys, you gotta put this in Disney+. <laughs> Plus. We gotta... We got to see this thing again. It, no, trust me, folks. Yeah. It, it was amazing. And, and, and again. It was amazing. Ethan Hunt would be so proud of you to pry all of this Little Mermaid info out of Rob Marshall at a Mary Poppins press event and, and with no sodium pentothal involved at all. No, nothing. <laughs> Speaking of Mission Impossible rated crud, we have to talk about your Light the Fuse podcast. No, well, I mean, but when this show comes out, it'll be on in three <sighs> days. So... 
I got almost three hours with Brad Bird, so it'll be at least three episodes. And actually, I have to thank everybody at Pixar who helped pull this interview off because they really vouched for me. And he remembered me from being at Pixar a few times. And so I really have to thank them. The interview is amazing because of him, obviously, not not because of us. But it is it is really like the um, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol commentary track that he never got to record. So I hope everybody listens um, and listens to older episodes. I'll be at the Junket for Dumbo this weekend, so I'm going to try to make that Danny Elfman connection so he can come on and talk about the score for mi- the first Mission Impossible. So, yeah, oh. there's going to be a lot of fun stuff in the future, too. New episodes typically pop up when? Uh, every Friday morning at 6, p- uh, 6 a.m. Uh, Pacific Very time. Very cool. Okay. Over here on this side of the fence, so we got the Disney Jewish podcast with Len Testa, uh, looking at Lucasfilm podcast with Dan Z. We got Marvel Us Disney podcast with Aaron Adams. We also have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, and we have our brand new podcast, I Want That, with Michelle Valladolid, who, yes, is my ex-wife. And how's that, how's that going, Jim? We're two episodes in, and nobody's been injured so far, so I, I'm a happy guy. It's all part of the healing process. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> we'll let you know on the other side of episode three tell you what if you could do uh, myself and mr taylor a favor if you could head over to itunes and rate our shows and you know recommend them for friends more to the point if you want to reach out and let us know what topics you'd like us to discuss on on future fine tunings if you like what you hear have here we do have Bandcamp, we encourage subscriptions and we're, we're putting together some exclusive material and Drew has places to go and so we'll be back soon with another episode of Fine Tuning on behalf of Mr. Taylor, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.